Hi, good morning, Shavuatov. Marcel, it's wonderful to have you. Thank you for coming, and it's good to see new friends and, um, and old friends, especially. And, um, and today, unsurprisingly, we're going to talk about Shiva, and we're going to talk about it through the lens of the story. It's a story of Tufasidim, because you always need to start Sunday morning with a story of Tufasidim. Everything is there. We have a Rebbe story. So Tufasidim go to their Rebbe, and they need advice in this season. One of them says, Rebbe, I did this Avera. I did this, I, did, I, I sinned. And, and my sin was so great, it was so significant, that I don't think Kukash Barco is going to forgive me. My God is not going to forgive me for this. The other person says, I actually just have the run of the mill Avera. Right? Like, I just, I, I've done a lot of things wrong, but nothing really sticks out. So the writer says, I want you to gather stones that are the size of your avero, the size of your sins, from an adjoining field and bring them back to me. So the chassid number one takes a very, very big stone and he puts it under his table. Chassid number two gathers up many, many small stones. Then the writer says, go throw them back in the field, scatter them in the field, and try to find them. Chassid number one has no problem finding his big avera. Right? This stone is there, it's noticeable, even though he scattered it, it stands out, stood out from all the other things. Chassid number two, however, had a lot of trouble finding those smaller stones and gathering them and putting them together. And that's because sometimes the big things that we do wrong are things that are at the top of mind, the top of our consciousness. But the problem is that the small things that we do wrong accumulate and aggregate. It's not always easy to find them at this time of year. What often we think about is the last big wrong thing that we did to someone um, or, to, or, or, or some mistake that we made at work, at school, in the family. And those little pebbles, those little stones are the things we really need to think about. So today we're going to talk about the time of Judah. How many of you read Atomic Habits? Okay, just two people. You guys need to read more <laughs> this year. This is, I want to tell you about the best sellers. Uh, but actually, I'm going to share with you some of the highlights of two important books that came out about habits. One in 2014, and one that came out, I think, this last year. Um, so we're going to be, you know, okay, up on the reading um, in the space of, in the habit space. And maybe I can save you about 50 bucks on two of our covers. Um, but I, I do think that there were a worthwhile read, and I want to relate it to, um, to this issue of how you think about the smaller things that you do that you may not be that conscious of in this season. So let's take a look at the definition of Adam. Uh, I think when you think about atomic chuva, you think of sort of a, a rocket ship and a blast off. But the way that it's used in this literature, in the book Atomic Habits, is really from it's really from a, a small unit. So let's look at a, a, a definition. The basic unit of a chemical element. And you have a handout. Does anyone not have a handout? Hands out, or we have handouts in front. The basic unit of a chemical element, or two, an extremely small amount of a thing or quantity. Sorry, that should be quantity. Um, so it's either a very small unit, or it's a it's a basic uh, a unit of a chemical uh, element. And although you probably think we're going to talk about definition number two, today you'll see it's going to be a combination of two and one. 
And the fact that we're supposed to keep track, some people have a special image, they keep a regular track of the things that they do wrong. That's not a practice that many people have, some people have it. We are sort of keeping a tally, the way that we might keep a tally of our steps, of our sleep, a lot of things that we tend to measure now in the digital age. So I, I, every year when I study Hoko Chupa, 10 chapters and one chapter a day, this is the practice of many people, I come across this passage and it bothers me every year, and every year I can't figure it out. So what I'd love for you to do is uh, turn to the person next to you, and you can read it in Hebrew and English. This is Hilfo Juba from the Commission of Torah. The Rambam is among the first to really codify the laws of Juba, categorize them, put them together from different places in the Gemara, string them together, use biblical proof text to support his view, and, uh, and put them in a neat guide, of which he believes, as he wrote in his introduction, was in elementary, easy Hebrew, and everyone could read it and possibly memorize it. So we don't have to memorize it this morning, but I'd like you to read 3 2. Let's make a little bit of drush here. We have, we have a lot of us taking drush at Wanyu, which is wonderful. Um, read this in English or Hebrew, and I'll be back to you in a few minutes. Go. You're not making enough noise for me. <laughs> begins, everybody has merits and everyone has transgressions. You're like, how hard could it be, right? In other words, I could be a tzaddik, I'll be a righteous person, because my merits will be, will be uh, I'll have more merits than demerits. And it doesn't actually tell you, you need to have 30% more. It sounds as if, on I'm, I'm the balance, all I need is that one that pushes me upward to the good. Now you're reading this, now the, 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 the darker or seamy side of this, which is what happens to your transgressions are more than your merits. So um, tell me questions that arise for you from studying this passage. 
Yes. And you know, if you don't mind, just say your first name. These are all friends, we're all family, we all need to get to know each other. Susan. What are you trying to tell me when you give me this calculation? 
because God is the only one who has the scale. And I actually don't know what anything is worth. And that in itself is frightening and terrible. What am I supposed to do about that? So um, why do you think I'm going to put this in? What is the merit of, of burdens if God is on my Part 
where you're going to say, I didn't come for this. Um, this is the life homework part, where what I want you to do, you all have pens, if you don't have a pen, just raise your hand to get you a pen. I'm just going to take a few minutes. I want you to start with your three good habits. You're not sharing any of this, um, so don't worry. Uh, certainly not your bad habits, but when you think about habits, right? Think about atomistically, breaking things down. Um, name three of your good habits, three of your bad habits. Which of the three bad habits is the most destructive? Right, go, I bite my nails, so that's not hurting anybody. I, I don't have to bite my nails, but if I did, I, I would assume that didn't hurt anybody. But there are things that, there are habits I may have, which actually may cause other people pain. Have you tried to change them, change that habit? And what would changing that one habit do to improve your life? I don't want you to think about this in the negative. I want you to think about it in the positive. If I changed this, what would happen? So we're now doing that atomistic chuba. I'll give you three minutes on the clock, and you'll look up when you when you're done. If you if you need a pen, just let me know. Anyone need a pen? Okay, so we have two pens. We having, are we conferring about people's bad habits here? Anyone here read that when it came out, or am I the only person addicted to these books? 
Okay. Now, the great thing about self-improvement books is you buy them, and you're like, if I bought this, I'm good. <laughs> Just buying it, I got this on my shelf, I'm good. I um, And uh, so I want to look at the golden, uh, just I took a few quotes, just so you can get the vibe. Um, he says, the golden rule of habit change, you can't distinguish a bad habit, you can only change it. So I think that's helpful, and we'll see as we look at the run-around uh, momentarily, uh, this idea of not saying that in order for me to really change who I am, I need to eliminate who I was. Because we're not in the business of eliminating who we are. We're in the business of honoring who we are and refining who we are. And, and therefore, this notion of unless I get rid of this habit, as opposed to I moderate this habit, I adjust it, and I change it, that's just a, a you know, more realistic goal. So here he, he gives you the research that he's done. Now, I, I'm not going to share with you the neurological research. I would say everyone's books has the term amygdala in it, right? If you, if you write a self-help book and you don't include amygdala, then it is not a, I'm not a neurologist. You can read about it, the science of it, if you care to read about the science of it in the book. But I want to share his conclusion. The process within our brains is three-step. It's a three-step loop. There's a cue. A trigger that tells your brain to go into automatic mode and which habit to use. Then there's the routine, which is physical or mental or emotional, right? What is the next step after the cue that you automatically do? And then there's the reward, which helps your brain figure out if this particular loop is worth remembering for the future, and that is what he calls the habit loop. The cue, the routine, and the reward. So we're going to talk about a bad habit. Kiddish. Okay? Nobody needs lunch before lunch. I don't know about you. Who needs lunch before lunch, right? Now you have a cue. What's the cue? The whole school smells like chocolate, right? Now this is a cue. And it's also about a quarter to 11 or 11.30, depending on when you start adopting. So that's about the time everyone starts milling in. And you have your routine. This is a place where you're like, I'm always standing here. You stand here. The seven-year-olds who are running don't stand here. They're already in the big, right in front. So there's the cue. Is the routine of how I walk, how I eat, what I'm doing, and then there's the reward. What's the reward? The chocolate, right? So that habit loop, and we and we are automated in the habit loop. Um, anyone give me another another habit loop? Cue, the cue routine and reward. Cue routine and reward. Yeah, Ellie. Alarm goes off. Snooze it and lose it. Right? So what's the reward? Right? So alarm goes off and you can kind of know yourself. I'm going to put an alarm. I'm really going to put tomorrow. I am getting up tomorrow. And you press the snooze button and you see it. Anyone else more have it? This sign is doing really well. We have no bad habits on this side. It's an attachment focus on you guys. Okay. Any other habits? A bad habit? The, the cue, the routine, the reward. Yeah. Dieting. Dieting. What's the cue? Smells good. Smells good. You're sitting around a shop's table. You said you weren't going to eat that. You've been sitting at that shop's table for two hours. And that piece of cake has been staring at you for two hours. And the routine is that this is what we do. And then the reward is that we have something delicious. Now, of course, we're thinking about physical things. Um, physical things, but we also have to think about, you know, um, spiritual things where you get in a routine. And one of them might be a cue. It's a certain time in the morning, it's time for it to be it's time for dominating. We get in the routine, and then, 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 then. the reward is we're done, and then we're out, right? And you say to yourself, 
how do I break this up? So in order to break a habit, something has to change in what he calls the habit loop. The cue, the routine, and then the reward. And what he says, uh, here you have on page 62, for those who want to look up, this from the archive edition from 2014. To change a habit, you have to keep the old cue. You can't get rid of the old cue. The shul is going to smell like junk. Deliver the old reward, but insert a new routine. So you say, you know what, instead of walking in this direction for the Kiddush, I'm going to walk somewhere else. Now, a lot of times you actually have to change the reward also, right? So thinking of an alternate, alternate reward can help you in terms of breaking this habit loop. Um, and you're welcome to, and you have a suggestion uh, or an example, that would be terrific. But here's, here's what I learned, I think this is the most important thing that I personally learned from reading this book, is about willpower as a muscle. And what Doobie did is he brought research, uh, he brought a, a control and variable test where a group of students were not allowed to eat cookies all day. And the, and the control group could eat cookies whenever they wanted. At the end of the day, they said the test is over and you can eat whatever you want. And they scarfed down the cookies. They ate much more than the other the control group, right? They, the control group was, um, you know, was sort of, they ate randomly, but they didn't eat a lot. But, but what Doobie tried to show, and it's not his idea alone, is that willpower is muscle. And when the muscle is tired, it can't actually perform well. So for example, I know a lot of people say, I'm so disciplined in one area of my life. I just can't figure out why I'm tired of the undisciplined in another. And that's where the willpower muscle comes in, right? You've been working so hard at one thing, and then the other thing becomes, You know, they wouldn't break, you know, keeping kosher. It does, they wouldn't break it. But a diet, they break all the time, right? And they go, I don't understand. Why can't I do this? I can't do that. It's because there's a willpower muscle. And you've been, you know, restricting yourself all day. Now, when you keep kosher, you don't think of it as restriction. When you get used to it, you think that this is just my way of life. But people who break bad habits actually make a good habit the new way of life. So let's look at what Doug Dewey said. Willpower isn't just a skill, it's a muscle. Like the muscles in your arms or legs, and it gets tired as it works harder, so there's less power left over for other things. And what he says, which is really important, and actually, someone just showed me a beautiful Hasidic insight um, that, um, that, that focused on this. As people strengthen their willpower muscles in one part of their lives, in the gym or on the management program, that strength spilled over uh, into what they ate or how hard they worked. Once willpower became stronger, they touched so you say to yourself, what's the value of adding to the shul? We're all going to sit in shul, stand in shul, we're going to be beating our chest, we're going to be reading this very, very long list of things that we've done wrong as a collective. What would it look like to atomize that and say, this year, I'm hyper-focusing. I'm hyper-focusing on one or two things. So that this time next year, I can say, actually, I really, really overcame that. Because if you have a whole list, a list of dozens of things that you've done wrong, what are the chances that you're going to change any of those things as opposed to feeling my willpower muscle right now is so exhausted? I just don't know that. I don't know about you, I'm exhausted at the end of the And it's not really because I haven't eaten. It's really because the intensity of what's expected is so dominant. You're really putting your whole self into it. And the question is, who's on the other side of that? 
So let's look at the time habits. Yeah, please. You are? Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. I just have a question. What's your name? Julie. What happened to 
power, how can you tell, so yes, can you tell the difference between willpower that strengthens you and willpower that weakens you? So if you, I, I think, if you feel that your defenses are weakened, and it's harder for you to say no to something that you want to say no to, then you feel that your muscle is at a, at a weak point. And you might know, gosh, you know the hard time for me in terms of washing your arms late in the evening. Uh, or the hard time for me about eating, or the hard time for me about dominating. You know, if, if I get up too early, then I'm not, you know, thinking enough about the words. So sometimes we recognize there are times in our lives, or times in a day, that make certain behaviors harder or easier. And then what would it look like to, to actually say, I'm going to change the routine so that I increase the willpower. But very often, when we're working hard at one thing, what Dewey says is, it spills over into other things that we do. And then you feel energized, because you look at the end of the day and go, I really have control over this situation. I have control over myself in ways that I actually gave up on myself. I told myself I couldn't do this, and now I realize I really can. Um, I also think, uh, I, I actually, in the course of my work, I have worked with a lot of recovering addicts, and uh, who are always thinking about chuba. I mean, there's nothing like just chuba. And I actually believe the, the mantra of one day at a time, I think, in the world of chuba and the world of habits is really important. It's not if I'm going to change this forever. It's if I'm going to change this tomorrow, or rather today. In other words, what, can I get to the end of the day saying that I did not do this? That's all we have in front of us. It's one day. Maybe it's one minute. Maybe it's one hour. So let's look at uh, Atomic Chuba by James Clear. And I want to tell you, I own this book, but I also listen to this book. And I'm not going to recommend that you listen to this book for more than, let's say, 20, 30 minutes. So I listened to it once for about two and a half hours, and I felt so terrible about myself. I just, I like, it's like, because you should do this, you should do that, and, and you know, it, it just gets to you. So just in segments, and I think that's the way to read it. So I brought it for you in segments, and I'm not going to read all of this, but you have it here. You don't have to be the victim of your environment, you can also be the architect of it. Sometimes, some people spend their entire lives waiting for the right time to make an improvement. Um, and then it talks about, you know, how much your actions reflect how badly you want something. Let's look at uh, page 236 for a second. Professionals stick to the schedule, amateurs let life get in the way. Wow. That's it, Salome, that's it. That's Colin Bear right there, right? Professionals, professionals stick to the schedule. You know, you're a professional, you go, this is, I care about this and this is what I'm doing. You know how it is when you're an amateur and you're like, I really want to change. But then it was a hard time to I really wanted to change, but then my grandchildren came over and like, it was really hard. I really wanted to do this, but then I got in the way. That's us. That, we're all that way. Right? I have a friend, she's very into exercise. I don't know. Rain, shine. She is, and she is thinking about that, and that's what she's, she's a professional. It's not that she's a professional, she's a professional marathoner. It's because for her, she said, this is what I'm going to do. I, uh, you know, I think um, our world, our world certainly our, our Jewish world, relies upon volunteers. Some volunteers are professional volunteers. You tell them you need to do this, and they are, they are doing it. They are crossing the T's. They are dotting the I's. Other people really want to do this. Like, I wasn't going to make the calls. I wasn't going to do this. They're amateurs, and they just don't get the job done. So you think about when I really want to do something, I want to change about it. How can I be a professional at it? And he talks about small beginnings, we know that small beginnings, nothing, no pollution there, but I wanted you to see it. But he says, goals are good for setting the direction, but systems are best for making progress. So this is, to me, I know there's nothing in the sentence that we don't all understand, but I want to talk about how important this sentence is. 
when you're, you set a goal. How many of you actually have to-do lists? Make to-do lists? Okay, that's a lot. And you know, you know you get that tremendous satisfaction across something on the to-do list. And sometimes I will have done something that I didn't put on the to-do list, and I put it out just so I can cross it. Okay, that's my profession. That's my profession. Uh, just because we need to get this done, right? And, and, and you know, gives you certain satisfaction. So one of the things I think is, is significant is saying, this isn't actually about setting goals, all of us can set goals. It's about putting systems in place so that the things that we really want to do, we can do. I'm gonna be a better student, but you didn't put any system in place and you can see the same behavior, so how does that change your And I wanna say, we're gonna spend a lot of time in school on Tuesday night and Wednesday, and, and that may get us nowhere, except we'll have a really great Tuesday and Wednesday. What's gonna get us somewhere is that on Monday, we set up a system on Thursday. Right? We set up a system on Thursday so that the dominating, the thinking, the reflection, the updates had meaning for us because the system we set up on Thursday carries us through and helps us manage those bad habits and changes them. And look at 27. You do not rise to the level of your goals. You fall to the level of your systems. Right? The fact that you set a goal, great, that's on a piece of paper. Everybody wants to be that. What is the system you put in place so that you can fall to the level of the system that carries you? Right? Now, third is the most important quote, and then we'll go back to the round and then um, and then any questions. True behavior change, this is the last quote, is identity change. You might start a habit with motivation, but the only reason you'll stick with it is that it becomes part of your identity. And here he does something which game changer for me. The goal isn't to read the book, the goal is to become a reader. Say, oh, my goal is to read a book. That's different than my goal is to be a reader, and I say, I'm a reader. The goal is to run marathons, to become a runner. The goal is to learn an instrument, sorry, and the goal is to become a musician. <laughs> your behaviors are reflected of your identity. You use an indication of the type of person you believe you are, either consciously or unconsciously. Research has shown that once a person believes in a particular aspect of identity, they're more likely to act in line with the belief. So, what we're really thinking about, if we're to take Chuba seriously this year, is what is my new identity? What is my new identity? I want to introduce a language I think about a lot from the anthropologist Clifford Getz, it's borrowed by Michael Walzer in, in, um, in political science, and that's thin identities and big identities. A thin identity may be someone you are for some short period of time, and then you're not that person anymore. How many of you were a vegetarian at some point in your life? Okay, not a lot of us, okay. Um, some people uh, were athletes, uh, and they took, uh, they took sports very seriously. Some people, uh, you know, and, and, and you went, you had that identity, and then you left it, because it was relatively thin identity. Thick identity is different. So how many of you have a sports team, and it doesn't matter where you live, that's always going to be your team? Raise your hands high. You were, you were very excited. What's your name? Leia. Leia. What's your team? The Celtics. Okay. Boston, right? Identity versus a thin identity. You don't really care or you care a lot. 
Now, uh, there are identities. We come in and out of identities. Uh, so I'll give you, like when I was a, when I drove carpool, that was a big idea. Like I was always thinking about it, talking about it. Huh? But the minute that was gone, and, and I only saw people, I would look at you and go, if you don't have a Honda Odyssey, it's either I'm totally understood you. Right? And I was, that is like the world of carpool, that is what you care about. But once you're done with that, it's not part of your identity, you go somewhere else. So I'm actually saying to you, thick identities tend to be made up of what we call the ABCs, affective, behavioral, and cognitive, the things you feel, the things you do, and the things you think about. You say, no, I'm really, my Jewish identity is a really thick identity for me. Why? Because I have a lot of feelings about it. I feel proud, or I feel sad, or so I have a range of feelings about it. Doing, I do mental all the time. And then, and then thinking. I read, I learn, but those are things that support the thick identity. And you need to have some relationship between those, affective, behavioral, and cognitive, in order to have a thick identity. It's interesting, I do a lot of work around Jewish identity, and so I work with um, seniors in high school and around this. And you know, you think, if a kid goes to Jewish day school, they've got a thick identity. But a lot of times, it's very behavioral. And sometimes it's cognitive, but it's not affective. So if you're wondering why people leave after six months in another college, like, that education was terrible. Well, maybe the education and the home life and other things weren't contributing to that thick identity. A lot of times we tend to think about habits as thin habits, and therefore they're easy to overcome. As opposed to saying sometimes a habit represents something very deep within us that we're not actually that willing to let go of for our own reasons. And so in terms of saying, how can I change, it's really an identity question. Let's turn the page and go to Rambam. The very Rambam, who's giving us the atomistic version of Juba, which is everything gets on scale, and you've got to measure, and hopefully you'll be okay. Let's look what he says in the paragraph in the chapter before. I 
actually, I'm not the same person. Now, given that, the next halakha is a little bit of a surprise, so further on the bed.
I, this is going to put this into my and tomorrow. I, you all can do chuba, but I've heard, Matt Moran Park I've heard from behind the veil, behind the curtain, that I cannot change. And Barry, and, and Barry Sachs said, who did he hear that from, if not himself? In other words, who told you you couldn't change? Was that something that you have created a narrative around yourself that says, I can never, I can never be different?